afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 15. Quentin Martell, The Windblown, and The Spurned Suitor. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Arbor on Twitter, Arbor on Tumblr, and Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History on Podbean and Twitter. And hello, I'm Eliana, the other one of your hosts, uh, and you would probably know me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly Podcast, or on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. So yes, lucky episode 15, our quinceanera, if you will. Oh my god, I'm literally quitting this. I can't believe you just pulled that. Where did that come from? <laughs> Who are you? Because you said 15, I was like, what can I do with this number? Quinceanera! Okay. I'm, I, oh my god. I can't. Uh, it is our quinceanera. <laughs> I, I literally, you just ruined the podcast. I can't. I did. <laughs> it is episode 15. Next next episode, we can drive. That's exciting, mm-hmm. as our super fan Warren would say. Uh, shout out to him. Couple housekeeping notes before we jump on into some emails and tweets of note and our lightning round. We are just finishing doing a giveaway for Fire and Suds 2 Bath Bombs. We will have the results of the winner of who won that from Twitter next week on the show for you. And along with that, we have soft launch our Patreon, uh, which means you can begin making pledges now if you so desire. Uh, Right now, you'll see that on the page, it says X number of money per creation. That's just so that we can like put a pause on everything for now. You're not going to be billed like every single week per creation. It's only once a month. And as a reminder, people who pledge $10 or above will get a Belwas Deserved Better sticker. And you can vote on which sticker you would like for us to print. People who are on Patreon, though, they actually get a say. But on Twitter, you can also vote for funsies. Yeah, watch out for that poll coming soon on Twitter and Patreon. And of course, we did have a couple iTunes reviews. As you know, my wife Eliana loves the iTunes reviews. It's her favorite thing. I do not get any satisfaction out of them and do not feel positively when I read them. So don't leave them for me. But for Eliana, they're for her. Eliana, do Where you does this read come from? Every episode I say it. No. I don't have a feelings about it. I know. <laughs> Eliana, do you want to lead us in with the first review and I'll grab that second? Sure. So our first review has an amazing title called Smash the Subscribe Button. Girls mm-hmm. Gone Canon is some of, if not the, smartest, most articulate, and genuinely hilarious asswaff literary slash meta discussion out there. Chloe and Eliana are thoughtful and inclusive with no punches pulled for author, characters, and readers alike. Come for the get a job, stay for the dad no, experience the strong bellless. Can't wait for your Patreon, ladies. Well done, XOXO, Sarah B, at Suki-san. Oh, thank you, Suki-san. I love Sarah. Sarah. Sarah's She's so, so great. great. Come for the get a job. Stay I for know. the dad no. That was good. She should sell yeah. things like us. Like, she, yeah. She just sold us. She really did. She, she, I mean, like, <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that all these things about us. I'm going to take it, though. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and another review we got, catching up on it, from Ricky Barnhart. With two blue hearts, spoiler alert, Eliana loves the emoji titles. Eliana is an emoji hound, so I am too. I like emojis. They're fun. They're fun. They're so fun. 
Hi girls, love the show. Got introduced to you on LML's live stream and I thought you guys were great. I spent the last week catching up. Love the flow of your episodes, how easy hours go by when you dive into the show. I love your back and forth with each other and all the impressions and storytelling you guys do to help bring it alive. I love A Song of Ice and Fire so much for this reason. The story's great, but going back and rereading with deep analysis with friends makes it so much better. Can't wait for all your POVs lined up. Excited for the next four years. Aw. Oh my god. Next four years. That's really daunting to say out loud. <laughs> I also just want to plug Amanda, aka Crow's Foods, Crow's Foods daughter, who is on that stream with us, and she's also very great. So yes. give her a follow, check out her stuff. And of course, LML, he's been doing some really awesome Sansa symbolism streams lately mm -hmm. with Maester Mary. Uh, which if you haven't Aww. checked out her stuff, you should always also check out her stuff. And of course, the ever lovely Sanrixian, Mallory, who is a wonderful artist. She does great drawings, prints. She has some really cool t-shirts. And if you stay tuned, we might just have, uh, spoiler alert, some fun Sanrixian stuff to give away in the coming time. So we will keep you updated on that. I'm very excited. Me too. Without further ado, we will jump right into our lightning round of what we missed. Of course, because Quentin has so few chapters, he has about four chapters, and they are spread across the book, distributed pretty evenly. You get about one pretty much per quarter. There are several chapters in between. So for now, all I am going to have us read for these uh, lightning rounds is just what applies anything that's in or around Slaver's Bay. In Tyrion 3, Tyrion takes up the name Hugor Hill joining Raleigh Duckfield and Halden Halfmaester to reach the Little Roin and the Shy Maid. Hugor meets a ghost from the past, thought to be long dead, and learns of a plot to join Daenerys Targaryen. Daenerys too. The murder of Daenerys' forces has accelerated at the hands of the Harpy. Danny implements a blood tax to fund a new force around the city and she takes hostages from the wealthy families. His dar presents his case for the fighting pits to once more be opened, and Daenerys considers it for going to see her dragons. In Tyrion 4, banned from drinking wine aboard the Shy Maid, Tyrion finds himself making his rounds, spying on the naked Septa Lamor during her bath, breaking his fast with Yandri and Yasilla, watching Duck train young Griff, and joining Halden Halfmaester as he instructs Griff in his lessons. Instructed to write down all he knows of dragon lore, Tyrion plays Sivas and watches the ruins of Nysar and giant turtles as they travel through the Roin. Turtles. I love them. I know. Daenerys 3. Sarazon Daxos, the Carthian merchant, visits Daenerys and attempts to sway her away from abolishing slavery, offering her instead 13 ships if she will leave for Westeros immediately. She refuses his offer, and after holding court the next day, as tensions are rising, she summons Zaro to give him her re official response. Zaro tells her that she will die screaming, and she throws him out of the palace. The next day, the Carthine have left a bloody glove for Danny, a declaration of war. <laughs> In Tyrion 5, floating past the ruins of the Croyane, Tyrion reveals he's figured out the Griff family secret. Young Griff is the long-fought-dead Aegon Targaryen, and Griff is John Connington. Tyrion reveals his own secret of Lannister roots, but the Shy Maid is suddenly attacked by stone men. Tyrion six again, rescued from the waters of the Roin and the Stone Men by John Connington. Tyrion is treated with vinegar to reduce grayscale infection. 
Tyrion plays a game of Savas with Aegon, probing him for information and learning of the baby switch. Planting a new course of action into Aegon's brain, he later convinces Halden to let him find a brothel searching for Tysha. Drunk, Tyrion leaves the brothel and becomes a captive of Jorah Mormont as a prisoner to be delivered to the Queen. In Daenerys 4, the Green Grace meets with Daenerys, once more suggesting she take a husband from the cities. This time, she suggests Hisdar Zolorak. Dario Naharis returns, and Daenerys lustfully sends from him, for him, but becomes upset with his barbaric suggestions on how to rule and sends him away. Then the Lost Lord. He's queer, and he's here with the disappearance of Tyrion. John Khan continues their route to meet with the Golden Company. With Daenerys staying in Meereen, their plans have been complicated, and the Golden Company is not quite as enthusiastic about their invasion of Westeros. Aegon uses this opportunity to come into his own as a leader, giving a compelling speech to retake Westeros and avenge Princess Elia Martell, claiming that Daenerys will have to join him in the end. The chapter ends with Jon Connington surveying his hand, watching Grayscale begin to spread. Ooh, such good chapters. I know. I'm so excited. I say this like every time we talk about Jon Connington, but I'm so excited. I know. I really can't wait to get there. Ugh. So much. And of course, this leads us into the Windblown. Quentin and his crew have found their ticket to Marine. Join the Windblown to defend Yunkai, then turn cloak when they're close enough. The other members, Sellsword Company, warn that they must prepare for a real fight, a real battle against real Unsullied and a real live fire-breathing dragon. Because the battle Quentin just fought in Astapor? Barely a scratch, though it felt real enough. Fate, though, throws them a bone when the Tattered Prince drafts a plan that falls perfectly in line with Quentin's own. And so the chapter begins. Legends and fairy tales aren't the only stories in Quentin's chapters. Rumors also surround him. For example, the Dragon, dragon Queen, they say, is heading south to ravage Yunkai. There's this great line that illustrates how rumors happen. Frog had it from Dick Straw, who had it from Old Bill Bone, who had it from a Pentoshi named Mirio Maracus, who had a cousin who served as a cupbearer to the Tattered Prince. Like, what is this, Mean Girls? Pol politics <laughs> on Planetos is very much a game of telephone, and it becomes hard to distinguish the truth from tales. Quentin is now a prince transformed into a frog, a classic fairy tale even in this world, as Danny does note later, but... That it exists in real life also shows how Martin is playing with these conventions. The Tattered Prince's history is also shrouded in gossip. Maybe, like, the clothes that the Tattered Prince wears, which is, like, I don't know, fucking Joseph's Technicolor dream coat, but bad. His history <laughs> is also a patchwork of lies and truths. When the Tattered Prince was three and twenty, as Dick Straw had told the story, the Magisters of Pentos had chosen him to be their new prince, hours after beheading their old prince. Instead, he'd buckled on a sword, mounted his favorite horse, and fled to the disputed lands, never to return. He had ridden with the Second Sons, the Iron Shields, and the Maiden's Men, then joined with five brothers-in-arms to form the Windblown. Of those six founders, only he survived. And we're definitely going to come back to his character motivations in The Spurned Suitor, uh, what he wants and what he did, but this also kind of reminds me of Oberyn in regards for what the Tattered Prince did with his life that he fought and rode everywhere and turned from his rule. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting because the Windblown are relatively new compared to the other sellsword companies that can cite their lineages. Some of them, not all of them, but can cite their lineages back to the Century of Blood, which we discussed a bit ago in that Bearston episode. Yeah, and the Windblown were founded around 270 AC. They command only about 2,000 people on horse and foot, but this reminds us that the Tattered Prince is actually not young whatsoever, especially when he has his interactions in the Barristan chapters, as we kind of went back on. It's something to think on. He is about the same age as Barristan, if not older. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of one of our good friends, Joe Magician 42 Joe Magician. Uh, you can find him on YouTube, on Reddit, on Twitter. But he has a great essay about Brienne being Pretty Maris, uh, basically Pretty Maris. He has a great essay about how Pretty Maris resembles Brienne if she had gone bad or if she had continued on with her life. And the Tattered Prince kind of reminds me as another version of Barristan. He's an elegant Mm -hmm. old man with a tattered cloak, always trying to get home, trying to go west. And of course, as Brown Ben Plum says, there are old sellswords and bold sellswords, but no old bold sellswords. I have a question. So you said that, like, the Windblown only commands about 2,000 people on horse and foot. Is that large or small compared to other sellsword companies? I don't know. Sorry to put that on you. I was like, maybe Chloe knows this because I don't. So Company of the Cat, they command about 3,000. The Second Sons are about 500. The Stormcrows, I want to say, are also about 500 horses. So it's not, uh, the Brave Companions even have about 100. So, I mean, it's relatively large. But it isn't exactly Company of the Cat large. Uh, it's mm-hmm. no Golden Company, etc. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. To fit in, Quentin agrees to play Jairus's squire, which allows him to stay close but away from the thick of battle. Initially, Quentin's pride is kind of bruised. He's earned the right to be called a knight, and he put in the work for it. I kind of wonder if there's like this air of youth in the way that Quentin takes offense to this initially like Barrison didn't seem to bristle at all at having to play the squire and he's like way older than Quentin and of course has risen much higher as lord commander of the king's guard but he I guess the reason why he can feel comfortable doing that is I mean once you've made it as like lord commander of the king's guard like you don't gotta prove yourself to anyone like he's made it and a lot of Quentin's storyline as you can see is him feeling the need to prove himself I also have this question about knighthood uh, as it exists in Essos. Like, it seems that this concept of a knight and a squire is known and accepted in Essos. Like, we see it here with Quentin and Jairus. We see it again later on with, like, Strong Belwas and, of course, Barristan. So we know that knighthood derives from that Andal tradition and that the Andals and Andalos were originally located in Essos. So does the tradition of knighthood still survive in Essos because of that? old location despite their migration to Westeros like could it have spread to the surrounding cultures in the areas and just stuck around I don't know I've got a couple thoughts on that I mean I guess when you think about it it's kind of like how some customs either stay like you were saying or even a lot Mm -hmm. of people that find that Westeros isn't exactly their brand of living and go east can find favor in those old traditions but I'd also go even Mm -hmm. farther to say that the idea of squiring stayed because it was wrapped up in slavery Almost, which we will get a little bit into that uh, historically in just a bit. We learn more about the rumors that surround the Silver Queen. The more Quentin heard of Daenerys Targaryen, the more he feared that meeting. The young Kaib claims she fed her dragons on human flesh and bathed in the blood of virgins to keep her skin smooth and supple. 
Beans laughed at that, but relished the tales of the Silver Queen's promiscuity. One of her captains comes of a line where the men have foot-long members. Good dig, Dario, he told them. But even he's not big enough for her. She rode with the Dothraki and grew accustomed to being fucked by stallions, so now no man can fill her. And Books, the clever Valentine swordsman who always seemed to have his nose poked in some crumbly scroll, thought the Dragon Queen both murderous and mad. Her cow killed her brother to make her queen. Then she killed her cow to make herself Khaleesi. She practices blood sacrifice, lies as easily as she breathes, turns against her own on a whim. She's broken truces, tortured envoys. Her father was mad, too. It runs in the blood. It runs in the blood. King Ares, too, had been mad. All of Westeros knew that. He had exiled two of his hands and burned a third. If Daenerys is as murderous as her father, must I still marry her? Prince Duran had never spoken of that possibility. There's just so much to unpack. Oh, yeah. Here, like, I can't even... I just can't even. Like, first off, of course, these are the sorts of rumors that the men in the Windblown are spreading about Daenerys, the Silver Queen. Because, I mean, she's a powerful woman, you know? She's, like, out here, and she's trying to get it, and she's trying to, like, get her goals and take care of her people. And you see how much they're trying to diminish that power by painting her as unstable or as promiscuous or as... um as deadly you know there's a lot of i think freudian undertones of like that threat of castration that's why there's so much painted about her being like this this terrifying like murderous figure when they're unable to control her or have her then they like think of her as this terrifying thing and you know it speaks they talk about, like, those powerful men that she cut down and her own, like, lust for power, quote-unquote powerful, like, her brother, and then her call, and how she manipulated them. And there's also some historical, I think, parallels here, too. Uh, yeah. And absolutely, the big thing is, like you said earlier, it's the Westerosi game of telephone brought to Easterosi. Uh, you're looking at, she did kill a slaver, and trick him with her dragons, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily really bad. I mean, you're just looking at all these stories are being taken out of context. She, her brother mm -hmm. did get killed, not to make her queen, not what she chose. She did not choose that, but it... I mean, she was Khaleesi regardless of whether or not right. her brother was killed. Like, he, it's funny because she's the one who's painted as power-hungry and, like, violent when we know that it was really Viserys who was all of those things. And now she's come to try to bring freedom and to liberate these cities, and she's being painted as a complete villain for it. Yeah. For sure. And, I mean, like I said, you can really see George channeling some other, like, ideas from history here. Yeah, and I know a lot of people have made mention of something like Elizabeth Bathory being kind of a, a influence for this. And I don't know if I'd 100% say for this, there are some other things that might go along with it, but Elizabeth Bathory was a noblewoman and well-born. People claimed she was a serial killer in Hungary and in Transylvania in the Habsburg monarchy. And she and a few others were accused of torturing and killing hundreds of young women from the late 1500s until early 1600s, with the highest count estimate being 650, which came from a book a serving girl actually claimed she had overheard a court official say they saw in one of Elizabeth's private journals. 
Her family's influence kept her from facing a trial, and she was held in solitary confinement until she died four years after that in 1614. I would say in the end, Bathory comes up, I don't know, a bit closer to a Cersei Kyburn kind of ordeal, if only because of the family ties, keeping her off trial, and the fact that everyone knows but no one's actually seen it, rumor mill. Like, Bathory would kill serving girls, daughters of peasants, lure them in with offers for money and job as servants, and then kill them off. Beatings, burnings, cannibalism, mutilations, flesh bitten off the faces, starving, freezing to death, needles, you name it, was brought up. I would even go as far to say Bathory has a great sort of parallel to Shira Seastar or Danielle Lotston with the rumor mill, which we'll definitely get into when we hit our Sansa chapters or our Arya chapters of the whole redheads are witches discourse, but in this stake it serves kind of as an intense rumor mill circulating around Daenerys. Yeah, it's... I guess it, I don't know, it might have been true with Bathory, but yeah, for sure. And Shira Seastar and Daniel Lawson were some more of those like powerful women. And it's interesting to see that similarity, because I think this is definitely something we're going to see in Westeros. People have talked about it, of course, but like, this is just a snapshot of what we're going to see regarding the reputation Danny's going to have when she comes into Westeros, that idea of like murderous and mad. And I think that Jairus ends up internalizing some of this messaging about Danny a little too much because you can see how much he fears like her and like this powerful woman thing when he's like calling her a bitch and stuff like mm. in Meereen, uh, in his exchange with Barristan and he blames so much of Quentin's death on Danny, whereas Barristan's like, uh, it's cause you didn't want to take responsibility for any of it and quentin on the other hand like he's met with danny one-on-one and while he still like lives in these stories and ideas of adventure and how he felt his own tale of heroism should go i give him the credit of like willing to try and see past those rumors and learn who daenerys truly was though i he still kind of missed and couldn't grasp what her goals were so Slaver's Bay is a goddamn nightmare. There are corpses everywhere, children fighting, no rules, just chaos. There's this line uh, in it in this chapter that the priestess in her torn robes impaled upon a stake and attended by a cloud of glistening green flies. This imagery just gives me such Lord of the Flies vibes, that way that everything's going towards that violence and destruction, that chaos, and away from civilization. It's becoming this world where there are no rules and along with it comes that loss of innocence for quentin and his crew and i don't know if it's necessarily worth noting but i'm gonna make this connection anyway where like the lord of the flies refers to beelzebub uh who is a prince of demons which i think ties in nicely with poor quentin aka Emmett's like blogs and essays about talking about the characterization of the tattered prince as the devil to whom quentin the character not the blogger, has sold his soul to. And of course, there's this other great line that is some crazy imagery and kind of not so foreshadowing. And fires, fires everywhere. He could close his eyes and see them still. Flames whirling from brick pyramids larger than any castle he had ever seen. Plumes of greasy smoke coiling upward like great black snakes. Rum, bitch. We get it. He's gonna die. I know. Go home, Quentin. Go home. Just like, Go, like, play in the water gardens. Go be like Doran, you know? Yeah, because that's going to go well for him. I mean, it would go better. If he did, like, maybe they would avoid a lot of things if he did that. Yeah, those kids are going to die, though. Yeah, because of, like... Him. 
Yeah. He should have just gone home. Anyway. Go home, Quentin. The cities uh, are full of ashes or turn to ashes, which is likened to snowflakes. And, you know, it draws again that idea of, like, how far is it from ice to fire? Right. It kind of reminds me of um, in the show House of the Undying Visions when Daenerys sees uh, the throne room and snow is coming down. Or is it ash? Yeah, I find that really interesting that it just, like, the snow falling in King's Landing or the ash, that's what it kind of reminds me of. And I think we're going to see a lot of that coming up mm-hmm. in the winds of winter coming out tomorrow. Next you have uh, Archibald, a.k.a. Green Guts, which is also an amazing name, getting really into his roleplay and asking Quentin if he's cleaned his armor. And the armor that he's asking about is like of the windblown and it's been worn from like years of fighting, but also years of different people wearing it. Frog's kit was only slightly better, and Sir Jarris's was notably worse. Company Steel, the armorer, had called it. Quentin had not asked how many other men had worn it before him, or how many men had died in it. They had abandoned their own fine armor in Volantis, along with their gold and their true names. Wealthy knights from houses old in honor did not cross the narrow sea to sell their swords unless exiled for some infamy. I'd sooner pose as poor than evil, Quentin had declared when Jarris explained his ruse to them, which... Of course, keep in mind that they abandoned all of their gold and their true names when they were in Volantis. So these guys are now poor highborns. They're in banks. Right. It's in the bank. Right. It's in like, Swiss bonds. Yeah, they're like, oh, great, paper. We're, we're going to come back to this. In many ways, it's it's funny that Quentin says, like, I'd rather, I'd sooner be poor, poses poor than evil. Like, Dorn's seen mostly justifiably as more egalitarian than, like, the rest of Westeros because, like, of course, women can inherit and rule, and because of their society's more openness when it comes to, to sexuality. But you can also see that they still very much have that classist structure. Uh, even in our humblest of characters, like Quentin, like, sure, poor is better than evil. Um, but the wording, like, makes it seem like it's something disgraceful. And also this idea, I'm, I'm like, looking at these things now because you brought it up, Chloe, like... That shedding of old costumes and names that reminds me of that point you brought up in Edward's chapters where Ed like has to borrow the clothes showing that he can't be himself in King's Landing. Yeah, and I mean, Quentin shows more Ned than just that in these chapters. Choosing his honor over what can get him ahead, ambition-wise, mm-hmm. Ned refuses to play the High Lord's Game of Thrones and chooses the honorable route, which gets him killed. And Quentin refuses to play an evil role to succeed in his plot. You know, if... Everything hadn't gone down the way it did. At least Ned, in some respects, knew when it was time to turn tail. He just didn't... He wasn't afraid to turn tail, you know, and go back home. It was a little too late. Well, I think Quentin probably felt the same way when he was standing in front of the dragons, but... Sure. Too little too late. (laughs) So the Tattered Prince then announces that they are riding for Meereen... And this causes Quentin to feel that they must enact their plan soon. And Jairus shushes them like, yeah, don't go like yelling, oh my god, the plan in front of everyone. Like Amateur and- hour. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way, though, it's done. That amateur hour is done because of the way that George R. Martin wants to build this. Like, he's hinted a little bit earlier that there's a plan. And now it's brought up again with a little more urgency. But it hasn't exactly been revealed, which builds that suspense. Yeah, and it's just like we mentioned last episode that these chapters read a lot like how Ned and Barristan chapters sometimes read, 
They immerse you in the action, forcing you to pick up all of the pieces in between. By the time you've put those pieces together and what the state of action is, you're already kind of in the midst of the action. We get a sense of like some of the geography here. It's a six to eight day ride to Yunkai from Astapor, and they already have an idea of some of the Yunkish generals who are being carried around by their slave armies. And this harkens back to some of those points that we brought up in that Barristan Wins episode again, uh, where it shows how unprepared some of these slaver cities are for combat. Yeah, I mean, also stilts. Yeah. Which we'll get to. Stilts. I mean, yeah, we should do more research. Someone, let's tell them to ask about this at Worldcon. Quentin still really likes describing people as roaches. (laughs) And it's a word that he uses for the Yunkish underlings. What, you mean, Quentin? I would rather be a poor than an evil, I guess, Martel. It reminds you, like, yo, yes, Quentin is a good boy, disappointing his dad, like, all of us end up doing, but, like, also, the highborn, like, Quentin is highborn. I wonder if, like, this is an intentional thing or not, I don't know. He was born, like, that he keeps calling people roaches, but, like, he was born (laughs) believing that he deserved something, and he deserved this, like, highborn destiny, um, I guess... Yeah, not necessarily his destiny as being a king, but he, he's he's become accustomed to being like highborn, you know. And while Danny didn't grow up like that, she grew up believing that she deserved Viserys' abuse until one day she realized maybe I don't. Or John believing that he deserved to sit all the way at the far end of the table. Yeah, yo, Quentin, I got you this destiny at straight fire. Hey, oh, okay, let's <laughs> Uh, many of the windblown struggle to remember the names of the different Giscari that they meet, since the Sword Company is, I guess, primarily made up of members from the Free Cities and Westerosi. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, why aren't there as many Giscari or maybe, like, Carthine citizens, or not citizens, but, like, people in any of these Sword Companies? Like, surely there's got to be some runaways from these societies. Yeah, and there may be some runaways, but I think it boils down to they haven't really had the reason to since they've kind of banded together in the free cities. Like, something in history that I've started to really understand in kind of this whole, we've just been doing a lot of the Slaver's Bay chapters, so I'm kind of like getting it finally. Yeah. Uh, but Valyria straight up fucked them up, dude. Oh, yeah. Which is why you see people like Krasin's Monaclaws rising up and Daenerys obviously shooting him down, but Geese is a proud old culture. And when they were destroyed by the new dragon lords after a thousand years, it left fragments of their people with nothing but slavery to carry their economy and highborn people. Uh, and there's that line in Danny Three in A Storm of Swords where Krasin says, Old geese ruled an empire when the Valyrian were still fucking sheep, and we are the sons of the harpy. It all comes down to exactly how Danny ends Krasin's dragons. The Valyria won each time with dragons, five times to be exact, and Geese was shot to shit each time. And of course, Geese brought over slavery and inundated it into all of the different free cities because that was what they had to survive on. So that's what makes Danny taking the Unsullied and pulling her trickery with her dragons so intense, which of course, we'll come back to this in just a minute, but... And I think going back to all those comparisons that Emmett was drawing last time between you know, the Vietnam War and Quentin's chapters. And of course, George R. R. Martin was very influenced by the Vietnam War. He came of age during that time and was protesting against it. That's very much like what happened there. Like, you can't, we never think about it, how 
a lot of the situation in Vietnam was the instability that led to that war was because of the French occupation there. And that's what created that power vacuum. And when they had to pull out after World War Two, so yeah. Oh, definitely. I think that's a. I think that's such a great point to like tie it all back to the way that the Valyrian Empire just destabilized everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just like Emmett and you and I talked about last time mm-hmm. that it's a wheel of time, and here's the wheel again. Daenerys has come with her dragons. Hey, yeah. And, you know, to rub, to throw salt on the wound, I guess. I, I mean, they're not Valerians, whatever. But, like, the windblown give the Giscari mocking nicknames because they can't remember anyone's names. So, among the Giscari that we meet is the Yellow Whale, who we meet again in Tyrion's chapters. And it turns out to be his master, Yezin Zokagas. We also meet. Someone that they call Girl General. (laughs) The other girl. Who is this? (laughs) Oh my god. That's our third host, Girl General. Oh god. We should put we should put that listed somewhere. Girl General. She's a sixteen year old who yes, she leads slave soldiers, but she breeds them, which is like really kind of messed up. Like what? And people like I mean, people really did that in real life. People are terrible. Yep. And she fancies herself a Yunkish Daenerys Targaryen, which of course speaks to those external trappings, uh, as we were talking about earlier, like just the external things that people see of Danny. But I think it it definitely misses the core of Danny's character if what she's doing is breeding and leading, like breeding slave soldiers to be like this army for her. Wait, you're saying that's not what Danny's doing? I thought that was it. That's the story. That's the song of ice and fire. I mean, hot take. She couldn't. She couldn't actually do that with the Unsullied if she wanted to. I mean, like, she couldn't either way, too. You know, I, I mean, mean, you yeah. know, when the wind blows. Um, this doesn't is also... really matter to me. Yeah, me either. Doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Mama just killed a man. <gasps> Misha just killed a man. Okay. Yeah, Misa just killed a man. Yeah, it's a lot... <laughs> Like, what we see in the brothel when Jorah captures Tyrion and the silver-haired sex worker, it's the mm-hmm. the Daenerys Targaryen effect. Like, I saw Daenerys wearing army shorts and flip-flops, so now I wear army shorts and flip-flops, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. that's... Even though no one's seen her, but... <laughs> we then also see Little Pigeon. Again. Little Pigeon! Little Pigeon. Pretty burb swag. Okay, um... Who is himself apparently short... But he leads these soldiers on stilts, and he too is into breeding slaves, and he breeds tall slaves with other tall slaves with the hope that they're eventually going to get tall enough that he's going to dispense with the stilts. That that I, I guess that provides some context. I'm still confused. I still think it's a bad strategy, but... It's hard to not kind of, like, shit on George for some of this, because you're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> But Though apparently there might be historical context. I don't know. I get it, but it's also kind of like, okay, George, whatever. Like, yeah. they're just, why? maybe it's not the best for war. I don't know. It just seems a little silly on the page. You know, kind of, I guess, suspension of disbelief. I'm just waiting for, like, all the birds to come out wearing big marabou, like, feather boas and, like, on their stilts with, like, yeah. sparkly glitter eyeliner or something, which I'm fine with. But, like, maybe not the time. It's not the time for this, George. 
Or maybe it should be the time and that would... Would you call it... We could call it the time of the birds. Oh, we could. The hour of the wolf. It's the hour of the birds. Someone later calls something the hour of the ghost. So, like, I don't see why we can't call it hour of verbs. I can call it the hours of the Eliana. I'm going to call it whatever I want. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Apparently that's how this works. Yeah, they literally just make shit up. George... George is just, like, saying things right now. Like, God, George. Even the little pigeon and his herons paled beside the folly of the brothers the sellswords called the Clanker Lords. The last time the slave soldiers of Yonkai had faced the Dragon Queens unsullied, they broke and ran. The Clanker Lords had devised a stratagem to prevent that. They chained their troops together in groups of ten, wrist to wrist and ankle to ankle. Which, we do see this during the Battle of Fire in the Winds of Winter. Mm -hmm. Which, again, reinforces perhaps not the best strategy. It prevents them from marching fast in their irons and now it's where they're going to be because it's so loud. Like, what is even the point of having, like, slave soldiers if they're not... Like, what is the point? And apparently, like, the Yunkai just, like, have no idea how to do a battle. There's a couple things to break down here. It expands on Old Geese's defeat, but at the same time, it also kind of shows the kind of environment of their slaves and their slavery and how it's more important that they don't lose a single slave rather than, you know, lose or win. And it is definitely, though, an expansion to Old Geese being defeated because once Old Geese was defeated, the Dragon Lords turned to Yonkai to beat them into submission as well. And the Yonkai learned slavery from the remnants of Geese, which is all they had. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this brings us to the Green Grace. See the Green Grace and the people that she mentions being beaten to slavery. Dude, she fucking hates Daenerys. Valyria caused their slavery. Like, Daenerys is that blood. Like, so Daenerys, she just wants to ruin her life, dude. Like, she doesn't care. She's like, all right, I'm smart and I'll ruin it. So after the Valyrians fell in the doom, they had nothing else to hold on to except slavery in these slavery cities, the Slaver's Bay. Geese took command of the slave trade because it was the one thing they already had a hold on and they were good at. Mm-hmm. The Yunkish have never had to battle because they've just been a part of the overarching boot over the slaver cities. Yeah, there's just so much here that like explains how everything got this way and it's just it was a stability built on a silent violence. Yes. It wasn't peace. Like people I, I you see often that people say that Daenerys disrupted the peace in Slaver's Bay, but I would she didn't. Like it's not a free piece. Yeah, everything is chaos now. Yeah. It's a blood piece. It is still violence. Mm-hmm. I also want to send, like, to, you know, just really change up the mood here. Like, a shout out to the name Lord Wobblecheeks. <laughs> <laughs> With this lot, the Windblown think it's no wonder that the other sellsword companies defected to Daenerys. They're like, oh my god, this is who they hired? <laughs> this is what they have? The Windblown now are seem very apprehensive about facing real unsullied who are coming with dragons and they say it's gonna be a real fight quentin feels what he experienced in astapor was a real fight which kind of shows how unprepared he is for these battles which kind of a meta perhaps on how unprepared we are for what's coming on the horizon and also just to add to that even like kind of the whole idea of oh what do you know of winter you know what do you know (laughs) you sweet summer child you know nothing about it this is he was not going to survive the winter, dude. He didn't even survive, like, the fall. Damn. Alright. Off stage in Days Ago, Quentin and the Windblown apparently faced a Butcher King 
Quentin thinks that he was trained in fighting, but it's nothing compared to the actual, like, real thing, which is a running theme throughout these books and probably will be very much for The Winds of Winter. It's going to be true for definitely Westeros when the others come. And a quote, He remembered Jerris sidling up just before the fight began. Stay close to Arch. Whatever happens, remember, you're the only one of us who can get the girl, which, like, no pressure, dude! You're the only one. To be fair, if Jairus had just said he was Quentin from the very beginning when they meet Daenerys, he might get the girl. You know, I mean, or he could dye his hair blue. Or if he just grew a mustachio. Yeah, he could get the girl, but I, is he going to get is he going to get that sweet dragon, the sweet firepower? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. I, if I were a dragon, I'd roast them. <laughs> we roast them on this podcast, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. And, you know, maybe if Quentin just, like, stopped calling slaves and lower classes and other people, like, roaches, I don't know, maybe that would give him a better chance. Right, like, he enters this city and he's like, I gotta get this girl to bang me out. And then he's like, also, I hate her people. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a negger people. And that's gonna work. Fucking trash yeah. people. Trash-ass slaves. God, get a yeah. life, trash-ass slaves. Like, come on, Quentin. Oh my god. Quentin, get your shit together. Quentin, go home. Go home. No, he doesn't. Like, you don't belong here. Cleon the Great is finally killed, I guess, a second time by Cargo Corpse Killer, which is, this is how he gets his name, Corpse Killer, but no one says it to his face. Because turns out the Astapori were so desperate to give heart to their Unsullied that they took Cleon's corpse and put him on a horse, which, like, gives me some Blackwater vibes with a Renly's armor, but, you know, grosser. Eat that peach, girl, get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been eating a lot of peaches this summer, y'all. I really love your peaches. I want to shake your tree. <laughs> Green boys screaming for their mothers, he'd thought, but he killed them all the same. By the time he'd left the field, his sword was running red with blood, and his arm was so tired he could hardly lift it. Which, like, apparently, not a real fight. <laughs> no, no. We finally get the real plan. While Quentin is fine with the physically dirty parts of adventure, he hates the moral dirt. They're going with the windblown to Yunkai, then turning cloak to join the Miranese. Despite their short time together, Quentin feels guilty about abandoning his new brothers. Which, of course, like, Quentin's kind of like the kid in your friend group as a kid, like, little seven-year-old that pushes up his glasses, like Chucky Finster, the whole time. He's just like, I don't know about this. Oh. Are we gonna get in trouble, guys? We're gonna get in trouble, you guys. I don't know about all this. Are you telling me that Jairus is Tommy Pickles? No, Tommy's not that much of an asshole. I know, exactly. He's Angelica. <laughs> Jairus is Angelica. And Jairus, that didn't work out as well as I was hoping. Maybe, like, Arch is Phil or Lil? Archibald is definitely Phil or Lil. Phil. Oh, yeah. Well, he's he's big enough, he probably needs to be both of them, I guess. Or Spike. Spike. I'm Spike. <laughs> um... And yeah, in response to that, you know, like, Jairus is like, yeah, it's not honorable, he's warning. And I mean, Jairus still sucks, but apparently he's the entire brains of this operation now, somehow. He's, like, lecturing Quentin on how the rumors about, like, Danny and her location, they're just rumors. And, you know, he's warning them about when the right time is for them to defect. Quentin warns that Archibald might be getting too close to the windblown, and, uh... 
Archibald's gonna feel bad about defecting, though I think actually Quentin's just talking about himself and is just pinning it on Archibald. He says that they can't get caught, like like you said, he's all like, mm. oh no, we're gonna get in trouble, or else they're gonna like get tortured by Pretty Maris, and again, check out Joe Magician's essay on the similarities between Brienne and Pretty Maris. <sighs> then we get this great line, because as we all know, the gods are not good, but for once, the gods were listening, and they're able to turn their cloaks even earlier. But the gods are still not good. My favorite, favorite plot. Turn cloak. Die harder. Oh my god, that is what it is. Uh, it literally is. It's too much. Oh my gosh. The Tatter Prince announces that they have a new job. Now we are chasing away the starving and sick Astapori. Chase them either back home or north to Marine. You know it sounds like a good idea going home. But that, conveniently enough, um, he wants... The Tatter Prince wants some of his men to defect to the other sword companies that are serving Daenerys. Like, why? This is so weird. That's what we want to do. Oh my god. I've never thought of that before. Okay. Which, of course, this is like step one in Quentin's journey failing as hard as like it does. Stuff is going way too easy, which kind of reminds me of Barristan Selmy's The Winds of Winter chapters. Because he's going to die, but I digress. I just don't think he's gonna die then, but now that you are bringing up our previous POVs, POVs, it's also like Ned's chapters where everything seems like it's going too well. Yup. The gods are never good. The Tattered Prince tells everyone that they each have their own like nice little sob story to tell of why Daenerys should take them in. And like, turns out everyone in this camp is like awful. They're all terrible people. We also get this great little Easter egg. If any of you have ever read the Duncan Egg novellas, especially The Sworn Sword, which is the sexiest of all of the Song of Ice and Fire stories, in my humble opinion. It's the hottest. <laughs> um, it's, it, there's just so much tension. And we get this person who, with the name Weber, and is it a descendant, maybe, of Lady Rohan Weber? And... The Tattered Prince says of him that he nurses claims to lands lost in Westeros, so, like, definitely. That's definitely who he is. Yeah, it has to be a descendant from Cold Moat of some sort, and it oh, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me at all, especially because earlier on in this chapter, we got that line about knights defecting from Westeros because they, you know, are infamous or whatever, and they defect over to Easteros because they can't live there anymore. Oh my god, it would be so amazing if he was also back in Westeros trying to reclaim his lands with, I don't know, like, Danny's camp and stuff, especially with the whole Blackfire thing. Mm. Well, Blackfire, another Blackfire rebellion. Yeah, because all we're seeing right now are back and forth, just the outlines of the families coming forward and who's going to support who. Obviously, we know Dorne is going to fall into the Blackfire camp. They will have the Ironwoods support, as the Ironwoods have supported yeah. for many, many years with Blackfires on and off in the previous wars. Uh, so it's definitely interesting. We get that quote from the Tattered Prince. The best ruses always have some seed of truth. And I think this seems to be a rule that a lot of the good players of the Game of Thrones live by in these books. It also works, I think, on a meta level as well. Um, Hemingway has been known to say, all you have to do is write one true sentence. And that's how he would like start his writing. He would just find one true sentence and from there riff on that continue writing and of course you know george r. r martin 
I think, subscribes to a similar idea of thought when it comes to writing. Like, he went to the same journalism school as Hemingway over at Northwestern. Um, not at the same time, of course, because time. And, you know, there's that necessity for human truth in order for fiction to feel believable. And that's why everyone loves The Song of Ice and Fire so much, because we really just feel ourselves in it, in the story. So, of course, Archibald, my favorite big man, <laughs> is like, well, this is fucking great. A motherfucking dragon hunt. Like, he's over there like, I just finished puking, dude. Like, off the boat. Like, oh. I just finished. <laughs> Going on a dragon hunt. Dragon hunt. All right. All right. And that brings us to our next lightning round as we get ready to do this other Quentin chapter. And again, we're only doing the SS chapters because like half the entire book goes by. <laughs> there are only four Quentin chapters, okay? So, Tyrion 8. Captured and stuck in Volantis, Jorah and Tyrion find themselves in the Merchant's House. And they're hearing news that the Golden Company has headed west without Tyrion. Oh no, they speak... With the widow of the waterfront, a triarch in Volantis, who gives them a message to deliver via the trading cog Salesori Koran, and to tell Daenerys that they are waiting. Tell her to come soon. In Daenerys 5, Danny counts enemy ships in the harbor, and has also counted the success of her betrothed in keeping the murders down in Marine. The bloody flux is creeping into Marine, and Danny has been advised to keep survivors out of the city. She realizes that she must marry Hisdar for the good of her city. We have a Danny chapter again. Danny 6. Daenerys visits a camp of the dying, ordering the living fed and to be cleaned, and the dead burnt. Dario returns, and Daenerys gets that good dick. Good dick, Dario. Get it? Get it, girl? I also love that she, like, straight up tells Barristan in that chapter, as we discussed during the Barristan chapter, Keep him away from me. Like, I never want to see him again. And then, like, he comes back and she's like, I lied. <laughs> and I mean, who hasn't done that once? Right, right, before? right. Like, don't let me, don't let me text him back. Don't let me text him back. That's literally what yeah. that was. Mm -hmm. In The Watcher, Ariel Hota surveys the room as Bell and Swan presents Gregor's head. And Duran summons his daughter and the Sand Snakes to pledge their loyalty and carry out his super special Master Dornish plan <laughs> oh my God. to get vengeance for their lost loved ones. Oh my god. What? Doran has a master plan. It's gonna... Right? Master plan. Master plan Doran. For sure he is. Master plan is death for all people. <laughs> Alright, Tyrion 9. Tyrion jousts on a pig, and a storm cripples the trading cog. Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah are captured by a slaver ship. Right, real straightforward. <laughs> that was it. You can really condense those Tyrion chapters, honestly. <laughs> That's what happened. In Daenerys 7, Daenerys meets three Dornish men who bring gifts for her, and they are not frankincense, gold, or myrrh. Quentin Martell reveals a secret marriage pact between Ariane and Viserys, and Daenerys remembers the prophecy from Quaithe, turning Quentin away to marry his dar. Big Messiah vibes. Tyrion 10. Tyrion, Jorah, and Penny are almost bought by Brown Ben Plum of the Second Sons, but instead they're purchased by a man named Yezin. Oh, there you go. Oh, oh. They are later summoned to perform for Yezin and his guests, and Tyrion excels in Savas, winning money for his new master. Yezin announces they will perform in Dasnok's Pit for the Silver Queen in the city of Meereen. Daenerys 8. Meereen is being besieged by Yonkai and its allies. 
holding a slave market right outside the city. Hostages are exchanged to ensure peace during the ceremonies to come, and Daenerys speaks with Brown Ben Plum, wondering what the right thing for her to do is and how to convince them to come to her side. She speaks to the Dornish envoys, but Danny refuses to abandon her city and advises them to leave. She returns to bed with her new husband, allowing him to have his drunken way with her before passing out. Missandei comforts Daenerys while she fails to fall asleep. Which brings us to Daenerys 9. The fighting pits have reopened, and chaos ensues. The smell of blood brings Drogon to the pit, and Daenerys mounts and tames him, flying away from her problems at last. In the Queen's Guard, which we've visited before, Barristan tries to keep the peace and do what Daenerys would want of him, but finds himself battling honor in a city that seems more foreign to him than ever. Set aside by King Hisdar, Barristan begins to uncover a deeper plot. Like y'all don't know what happened. Yeah. We've been there. <laughs> We've been there. The Iron Suitor. It's just the Benny Hill theme. <laughs> Yakety sense. That's it. <laughs> Victorian is outside of Slaver's Bay, ready to go marry Danny. But his arm wound is gross and he could die of infection. But then they find Makoro and Makoro is all, I'm gonna fix your arm. And he does. In Tyrion 11, the Pale Mare affects the slavers outside a marine and their master is dying. Tyrion, Penny, and Jorah escape the grasp of the slavers and meet with Brown Ben Plum. Tyrion plays Tavas with Ben, matching wits and learning all he can of the current political and war climates. That brings us to the discarded knight. The Miranees demand the dragons be put down and other courtly betrayals. Barrison advises the Dornishmen to leave, yes, okay, before something deadly befalls them. Dun dun dun! <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And this leads us right into the Spurn suitor. Quentin Martell's companions press him to return home while they all have their health, but Quentin chooses to stay in the east until he finds Daenerys. He attempts to strike a deal with the Tattered Prince, hoping to hire the Windblown, but their betrayal left a sour taste in the Tattered Prince's mouth. When double the gold doesn't sound good enough, Quentin reveals his plan to steal one of Daenerys' dragons. The prince names his ultimate price. His home, Pentos. Jairus returns to the pyramid at the Hour of Ghosts. Sounds made up. Okay, you can just... Hour of fucking... Hour of tequila, alright? My favorite Claiming hour. he found... Yeah, I mean, he found some of the windblown drinking in the Miranese cellars. It is that time, alright? He finds old Bill Bone, beans, books, Bill Bone Baggins. Uh, <laughs> kudos to... Kudos to Chloe! coming up with that anytime that could anytime jairus slips beans a gold dragon to keep him from slicing him open as a deserter and to get a message delivered apparently everyone on the windblown's pretty pissed about the desertion by the dornishman what yeah so this meeting's definitely what? gonna happen if not like because they're willing to meet with him but also just so they can murder the shit out of them <laughs> Jairus, you know, dropping that wisdom here, he comments that they should be heeding Barristan Selmy. Like, he says, When Barristan the Bold tells you to run, a wise man laces up his boots. And, like, they should. Like, run, bitch. As we said earlier. Get the fuck out. Yeah, drink. Like, this is the nicest thing I'm ever gonna say about him. So <laughs> pay attention, man. Men. All men. This is, he kind of nutted up during this trip, but, like, he's just kind of a goddamn dickbag, dude. Like, I hope we get yeah. hate mail about how much I hate men, apparently, because that's what that means. But literally, I only do if their name is Drink. 
Yeah, honestly, I'm surprised we haven't yet. Yeah, just that one time. Um. (laughs) Volantis, Quentin thought, then lease, then back home. Back the way I came, empty-handed. Three brave men. Dead. For what? You know, this is a question that, like, we try and answer all the time. You know, like, turn down for what? And I mean, what's the point of four dead men to Quentin? That's my question. Like, ever think of that? What's the point of four dead men? Dude, like, sirens going off. Bingo. Like, she said it. Bitch, turn back now before you get to the dragon's lair. That's typical fairy tale. Like, you turn back. There's signs on the wall that literally say, turn back. And here they are. They keep going. Quentin thinks about how he wants to see the green blood again, Sunsphere, and the water gardens. He wants to breathe the beautiful, the crisp mountain air, and ironwood compared to, like, the air in Slaver's Bay. He thinks, but he knows that he'll see the disappointment in his father's eyes, and he thinks how his sister would be scornful and the sand snakes would be merciless, and facing Lord Ironwood after losing his son... And of course, just like we talked about last week with Ariane and the Sand Snakes and their scorn and how he grew up with them, probably making fun of him terribly because he's the younger brother. And of course, the disappointment of Lord Ironwood hurts the most of all of this, of him losing his friends. I never meant for any of you to die, Quentin thinks. Our poor sad son. Indeed, our poor sad son. And regarding that, I think everyone just needs to, like, all the people back in Jordan just need to, like, shut the fuck up. Because, like, this entire journey was way harder than anyone else thought it would be. Like, Quentin isn't just sailing across the world like it is in normal times. Like, this isn't the same Essos that Oberyn visited. Like, sure, while Oberyn spent a lot of time in the disputed lands and those were, like, involved in skirmishes and wars, like, that was still a mostly peace... Not peace. That was still, like, a mostly quieter essos right like everything wasn't falling apart this is a war-torn continent and doran didn't think that through and because of doran's lack of foresight and planning quentin and his friends are paying the price there's so many and i guess it's kind of like the chosen boy hero journey kind of thing but it kind of there's just so many harry potter goddamn parallels with this like with quentin telling his friends to go that this is his task and he'll see it to the end And Archibald says that he and Drink will stay if he stays, which, of course, as we know, yes, Quentin is saying, please go and being selfless, but he's the one that dies. He's not Harry Potter. He's not the boy who lived during this. Yeah, he's one of the Weasley twins. Oh, that's not, I mean, you could say that's a pretty, that's a holy comparison. I I know, I really liked them. I don't know, he's, I don't know. I, there's no corollary for Quentin, I guess. No, but I mean, it's it's really just the hero. Yeah. It's the hero's journey, but it's also the fact mm-hmm. that sometimes you're not the hero. Sometimes in life you're the windshield, and sometimes you're the bug, you know? And yeah. Quentin's the bug. The roasted bug. Dude. Damn. Yeah, and I mean, like... Instead, you know, Archibald's like... Yeah, he's going to just stay. And I'm like, is Archibald taking this seriously? I'm sure. Or maybe Archibald's just really committed to his mission. I don't know. If anything, I think both of them are committed to Quentin. I think so. Yeah, that's true. They do They do stand by their boy. Mm-hmm. Especially when they blame everything on Daenerys later. But anyways, <laughs> dickbag. And Denzel Dahan turns up at Quentin's door the very next evening, telling him the prince will meet him by the spice market. The door will be marked with a purple lotus, they say, 
which is interesting because of course purple signifies royalty for the tattered prince but the lotus is usually a symbol of purity and the mind generally so i'm not sure exactly if that's supposed to mean anything but it is interesting uncle iroh's there yeah um that's exactly what's happening that's what it feels like to me quentin arranges for both princes himself and the tattered prince to bring only two men so denzo leaves advising him to come at sunset and not be followed the dornishmen then leave an hour before sunset and quentin and jerris wear their sword belts archibald has his warhammer slung across his back i love that he calls arch the big man by the way like i've, I've grown very, very endeared and like i've grown very fond of Archibald in these chapters so far. I'm like, I love the big man. He's my favorite. <laughs> He's nice. I'm not sure I get him. I get know? him. I get him. I understand him. I don't think I get him. I speak Archibald. You just need to... What we need to do is we need to do an Archibald episode. And we're going to okay. do that. That'll be our first Patreon episode available next. No, I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. <laughs> That's um, not really what we're doing. I mean... Unless we do a Riverdale episode, Archie. Stop. Jairus once more tries to get Quentin to abandon this impossible task, quit while you're ahead, but to no resolve. Jairus highlights they broke a pact of honor, which is very serious to do to these mercenaries that have been around for, oh, you know, 60 years almost. Well, 40, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't do math. And 30 years. <laughs> I don't do math, okay? And it's said pretty Maris can stretch a man's dying out for a whole moon's turn. Which, like, I feel that, you know, one... From one menstrual cycle to the next, it's also how I measure things. That's when I time some of our threads on the subreddit. Yeah, which also brings me to, like, wait a second. Like, is that, like, the Westerosi period joke of, like, when girls are on their periods, they're mad? Is that what he was saying? Also, is, like, is this a period piece? Oh, I, I wish it were. I don't think that's what they're thinking, but it's, it's a thing I relate to, and so I'm going to impose that on the story. Thank you, me too. Project, project, project. Project, 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 just like how Quentin projects wanting to not defect onto Archibald. Um, and how Barristan projects on Daenerys. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways, so although Tatters, the Tattered Prince, wanted them to pretend to go over to the Stormcrows, they were never supposed to do it for realsies. So uh, some of Tatters, Tatters' men, they're like still in the dungeon. Their names are Sir Orson uh, Dickstar. That's not even like... <laughs> Yeah, that's my name. Someone within their camp, you know, Dick Star, like same dog, uh, Hungerford, Will of the Woods. Yeah, Dick Star. <laughs> Dick Star, my new fave Dick name. Star. Quentin counters like, mm, yeah, we kind of fucked up, but Tatters loves gold, which Jairus counters like, yo. We don't have that to give them left. Like, you realize that, right? Like, we, we abandoned that. We abandoned that. Bank. It's in the bank. You have to get all the way back there. Yeah, the, the nearest ATM is, like, three moons turns away from us. So back in fucking Volantis. Yeah. Uh, Jairus comments that the city's piece is garbage. Not untrue. Half the city is calling the dragon slayer Hargaz a hero, and half spit blood at his name. Archibald calls him Harzu because they all sound the same to him, like his Dar, Hamzam, Hagnag. What does it matter? I call them all Harzu. He was no dragon slayer. All he did was get his arse roasted black and crispy. We stand. He was so brave. Would I have that courage to face that monster with nothing but a spear? 
Foreshadowing. Yeah, all he brought was his sudden spear. He became his sigil. Yeah, pretty much. He died bravely, is what you mean. He died screaming. He died screaming! Go home, Quentin! Just go home. Quentin attempts to defend his choice, that he has dragon blood in him centuries back, and Jairus actually tries to talk some sense into him. This is what I have to do for Dorn, for my father, for Cletus and Will and Maester Kedri. They're dead, said Jairus. They won't care. All dead, Quentin agreed. For what? They bring me here so I might wed the Dragon Queen, a grand adventure Cletus called it. Demon roads and stormy seas, and at the end of it, the most beautiful woman in the world. A tale to tell our grandchildren. But Cletus will never father a child unless he left a bastard in the belly of that tavern when she liked. Will will never have his weddings. Their deaths should have some meaning. That was not my question. Men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. I loved Will and Cletus too, but this will not bring them back to us. This is a mistake, Gwent. You cannot trust cell swords. And again, for once, Jairus, oh, this is so painful to say out loud. Jairus actually sounds kind of normal, you know? I'm kind of like annoyed at like how the voice of reason in this chapter is Jairus and like how much sense he's been making these past two chapters, but like, you know. I get it. I get along. I also get along with frat frat boys. I got a I got a bunch of friends who are frat frat boys. And to be fair, maybe it's the framing. Like Quentin knows Jairus, and it's like you said, like how dudes support their shitbag friends and ignore their shitbags. Because yes, Barrison's POV might be a different generational look at people and different point of view, but Jairus straight up still says some dickbag things. And okay, to double back on that, to be fair, his friend did just die, so he's probably just like. You know, like, reaching out and being a dickbag, but he's still a dickbag. Yeah, he could be, like, in that grief of, um, that, that stage of grief denial. He's in denial about, like, his role. He Later on, he'll get to the anger and the and the depression part. Wouldn't you say he's closer to the Roin? Hey. Thanks. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, again, I have dickbag friends that, like, I also like, and I keep them around because they make good friends. Sometimes I wonder, am I the dickbag friend? I don't know. Though, you know, with some further analysis, like, in The Merchant's Man, Quentin was talking about how he felt like he was the only one who was taking this entire, like, journey seriously, and he felt that Jairus was treating this, like, entire adventure like a game despite the deaths of their friends. But I think that maybe part of- for me, maybe part of it is, like, the battle in Astapor. Like, despite it not being a real battle by windblown standards maybe it like woke something up in Jairus to the reality of what they're facing now because now he's just like we need to go home like this this is a dumb idea it's all over of, this is bad like yeah this is a bad idea like it's straight up it's over Quentin it's done you're not gonna get the girl like that's what this is so just I mean Quentin's in denial yeah exactly and like his whole plan we're about to learn is to go chase after Daenerys? Like, yeah. that's not gonna happen. She's on a dragon somewhere, dude. Like, do you know where your dragons can go? They fly away. Far away. They fly, like, past continents. Or, like, you know, like, as a lot of people, maybe even, like, Jairus, they think that she's been eaten and she's dead. You know? Like, they're like, it's over. 
Yeah, it's done. And, you know, as you as you read aloud, like him saying, like, I loved Will and Cletus also, but this isn't going to bring them back to us. Like, it's not, it's not worth it. And along with all of this, Quinnon thinks that he trusts in my own destiny. I am a prince of Dorne, and the blood of dragons is in my veins. Yeah, I'm just like, Quentin, what are you doing? Like, your own destiny, like, your own destiny does not mean shit. Like, it's funny that for all of the foolish choices that Quentin makes, like, sometimes it feels as though he's just not actually making choices consciously or like uh intentionally does that make sense like he's just kind of letting himself fall into this like lap of deity and he's like oh i could not help it this is my destiny like i had to do this and like spoiler it's not yeah like the flames of dragons are what's in your veins kid not the blood he had a chance to save his friends to take them from this hell city to leave and the warnings were all there the flames spiraling around him, the dead bodies, and he stayed. He pressed on. Sometimes life isn't about being the hero. Sometimes being the hero isn't about acting boldly. It's acting with the way to save lives before more innocents are butchered. Like Egg lighting up Summer Hall to try to hatch dragons for his family's destiny. That's not what's right sometimes, and it makes people like Dunk have to clean up the fucking mess and die the hero, the true hero. Mm-hmm. Quentin knocks twice upon the door with the purple lotus, says the secret password, and he is let in. They are led into the door by an old woman who is wearing a fringed dark red tokar with tiny golden skulls fringing it. Which, of course, further foreshadowing through clothing, the old woman's tiny golden skulls are basically Quentin's tiny skull wrapped in flame in gold. I mean, George wouldn't have referenced this old woman's outfit. I mean, this is straight up foreshadowing through clothing. This old tiny woman, and then there's obviously this description of her, of how her hair's mottled and white and disappearing, and she's old and wrinkled. And I mean, this is a woman we will see once. We will never see this woman again in this entire story, but George took the time to describe her. It's very obvious foreshadowing through clothing. Also, I just love this fashion statement. Yeah, me too. Like, very edgy. Yeah. They make their way through the undercellar, down steep, twisting stairs. Archibald pulls his dagger for protection as they near the bottom, and Jairus brings up the rear. They emerge in a brick vault with a red lantern hung on the door hook and a black candle on a barrel, the only light. Hago Corpse Killer paces the wine vats armed with his rock. Maris cradles a crossbow, and Denzo bars the door. I just want to throw this question out there for people. Like, do you think that when Denzo kills someone, he says, like, to them, like, as a catchphrase, like, you're Denzo? Like, do you think that's a thing that he does? I think I'm quitting the podcast is what I think. Oh, so you're Denzo. Oh, my fucking God. One too many, Quentin thinks. The company ignored his terms and made their own. The tattered prince uh, sits sipping a cup of wine with chain mail glittering beneath his plain cloak. Quentin comments, the prince looks different without his usual rags, and the prince offers them food and drink. Jairus counters that they brought three when two were agreed apiece. The prince comments that Primaris is no man, which like, lol, 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 I get it. <laughs> there are no men you like Maris, only Maris. <laughs> I feel like that's like the best Jamie quote to use for anything. Like, it's just such a pompous idiot line. Like, 
there's no men like me just me like i could use it for everyone yeah oh i was thinking i was thinking tolkien but yeah, oh yeah that sure. works too uh, yeah The Dornish crew offer their apologies for deceiving the Windblown, and the Tattered Prince shrugs. He cares not for their reasons, but of what they can do to make it up to them and earn the Windblown crew back. The Windblown make fun of Quentin's failure in marrying Daenerys, commenting it's a pity they didn't desert them sooner to marry her. I still like that Quentin thinks of Danny charitably here. Um, they say that she laughed at him. And especially compared to how Quentin's friends see the situation like and of course Barrison explains it too like I don't know if Quentin's misremembering the situation by saying that Daenerys didn't laugh but I interpret it as him seeing it as Daenerys not laughing at him because she's not she's laughing at how it parallels the story of the frog prince you know and as we see in this chapter Quentin may have some understanding of languages like he uses the slave's tongue as they say to get into the purple lotus location and i mean this would have been like way better for him to have earlier on in his journey but like whatever right i also think like i know earlier you had kind of mentioned he didn't really seem to get the scope of it but i feel like anyone could really see danny's predicament if they looked hard enough and archibald and jairus may not be in the mindset quentin is quentin has taken on this task that he knows is huge and what it relates to is Daenerys being the queen and conquering Westeros with her dragons and he beside her and gaining vengeance for Elia. The entire idea of people like Elia shouldn't die because of the political game. That's not what should happen. So Quentin may be more oriented in the mind of politics than the other two are. And he might just understand that the sad smile Daenerys gave him wasn't because he's an average looking frog, but because she has a people to protect. And that's something that he's thinking that he would have to do if he were married to her. Yeah, and it's something that maybe, for some part, I could see Doran trying to instill that in Quentin, because you can see that's part of why he stayed out of the war for so long. The situation of the masters surrounding Marine is discussed, and we learn that Yezin Sokagaz is dead. They claim Marine and Yunkai have reached peace, which, like, lol, yeah, I'm so sure. But the Tattered Prince knows that war changes daily, and someone surely will have need of their swords. Tatters breaks it down after he finishes his wine. He's like, look, y'all are proven oathbreakers and liars. You come into my house, you try to join up with me again, all to steal a friggin' dragon? That's what you want? Like, bro, give me some more here. Like, level, level. Yeah. <laughs> I just, like... Also, it's funny, because I don't think... And as we know, Quentin cannot pull it off. But but the deal and the way that Quentin is trying to like do this, in some ways I get very Tyrion Lannister vibes from this exchange. Um, again, with less faith in Quentin's ability to do the whole thing. Um, whether it's like actually paying them back or like pulling the wool over their eyes. Because around this chapter, close to this chapter, you have that moment where Tyrion is signing the second sons into his service and he's promising them all of this gold. He... Also doesn't have it on him now, but he's like, just just help me take Casterly Rock. And we got it. We got it. It's fine. And, like, he does this again, you know. He promises a whole place to people with, like, the veil when, with the mountain clans there. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to give you the Eerie. Like, and he's probably going to follow through on that promise. But, like, Tyrion's the kind of person who can do that. Quentin's the kind of person who's going to go die. 
Well, and that's what's really interesting now that you say that, because I think we can look forward to Tyrion being the actual person to give Pentos to the Tattered oh, Prince. Yeah. I think that's a lot of build-up to Tyrion being the person to do that. I think Barristan will die, so no dice there. But I think Tyrion will probably foster that agreement to foster almost that peace. I wouldn't call it a peace, I guess, but to give that control over for Pentos and to help affect the Free Cities. Something else interesting here is in the previous chapter, we learned that when the Tattered Prince is 23, he's offered the lifestyle to eventually be Magister of Pentos and rule, but turns it down to adventure and fight. And now here he is seeking to rule over Pentos. Of course, we know that the Tattered Prince soon asks Barristan for the same exact thing. He's not bending on this Pentos thing. This is an old man's regrets from a 40-year lifestyle of fighting, much like Barristan has many years of regrets. And now the Tattered Prince wants what was once his to take. And just like poor Quentin has said, and Eliana reiterated, Quentin made a deal with the devil, and Barristan needs to be warned that when you make a deal with the devil, you're going to get burnt. It is really, I just don't get the Tattered Prince, and we don't get much of him. We'll probably learn more about him in Winds when we do this whole, like, taking Pentos and Pentoshi are because of course Tyrion's also come, going to come with the information that oh by the way Illyrio is supporting this guy named like young Griff who's totally competing against you yeah. but along with all of that like I, I am curious as to what the Tattered Prince is all about because the Pentoshi system is really weird like they elect this one person to be their leader and he's gonna rule and stuff and it's gonna be great but the moment anything goes wrong they're like oh we're gonna execute this guy and maybe the tattered prince was like no this is a this is absolutely like a poison apple i refuse to take this yeah but i don't know we don't know anything we don't know enough about him yeah that's an interesting point you bring up too like maybe he didn't want that because he knew he would be yeah. in danger of taking it and now maybe he realizes he can change the system i think we'll definitely learn more about it in Tyrion chapters, in the Winds of Winter, I think that is going to be our window into it. Uh, but I think that's it for the Spurn Suitor and for, of course, the Windblown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and next time, of course, we'll be doing the chapter... Oh. That's literally the name of the chapter. Here's Wondero. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, though, as we do that chapter, we will do an outro of the effect on Quentin's story, and you will find out what our next point of view character is going to be that will be starting the week after and that point of view character will also bring a special patreon episode a patreon only for september when their arc is over uh so check that out it will be a special winds of winter chapter just for five dollar and up patrons thanks so much for listening you guys we are girls gone canon you can listen and subscribe to us on podbean on itunes on google play on acast and on stitcher and of course, if you've enjoyed this, we also make fun commentary elsewhere, so be sure to follow us on social media, like follow our Twitter, uh, at Girls Gone Canon, and, you know, as we said earlier, feel free to leave us reviews on iTunes. Feel free to also send us an email. Uh, you can email us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week check out our patreon you can also leave us messages there participate in this community i don't know get fun things 
I don't know. Yeah, some good stuff. We got really cool stuff coming up for patrons. I think we do. Yeah, and you know what? Thank you so much for listening. Either way, you guys, we do this for you guys yeah. no matter what. We don't really have favoritism besides, like, the poll for the stickers. Sorry. Uh, and <laughs> But I I guess that's it, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I've been Chloe. You can find me on social media as at Lizen Arbor. And I've been Eliana. You can find me in various places as Glass Table Girl. Thanks, guys. <laughs>